Now we're here this morning to, as part of our worship service, have an act of remembrance. And in this centenary year, it gives me, of course, great honour and a privilege to lead the act of remembrance once again. Now today we remember all those individuals of our armed forces in air, land and sea who died during World War I. This, for those who don't already know, is the 100th anniversary of the start of World War I. World War I was supposed to be the war to end all wars. And yet how foolish that notion was. Did you know that there were 16 million dead as a result of World War I? There was 20 million military and civilian personnel wounded. Out of that 16 million that died... 888,246 were British and colonial members of our armed forces. And today we have to thank God for their sacrifice. And we have to at least acknowledge their memory. We also want to think today of those killed during World War II and in all conflicts since, not forgetting our own troubles. There's over 3,600 murdered in Northern Ireland as a result of the troubles. Many loyal members of the Royal Ulster Constabulary and the the Ulster Defence Regiment. Today we would also want to think of the ongoing loss of our armed forces in arenas of conflict such as Iraq and Syria and of course the Afghan conflict as far as the British soldiers is concerned has virtually come to an end. I'm going to ask you to stand now and we'll have an act of remembrance together.
The congregation will repeat the last line of Lawrence Binion's Ode. They shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning we will remember them. We will remember them. <coughs> Let's just observe a moment's silence. can be seated. Let me read today from the scriptures from Second Chronicles chapter 24. Second Chronicles chapter 24. Chronicles is found in the Old Testament of course if you get the first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. We'll come to first and second chronicles. First and second <laughs> chronicles, and we're at second chronicles chapter twenty-four, and I'm going to read from the verse nine. Second Chronicles chapter twenty-four, verse nine, and and they made a proclamation through Judah and Jerusalem. To bring in to the Lord the collection that Moses, the servant of God, laid upon Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought in. And cast into the chest until they had made an end. Now it came to pass that at what time the chest was brought unto the king's office by the hand of the Levites. And when they saw that there was much money the king's scribe and the high priest's officer came and emptied the chest and took it and carried it to his place again. Thus they did day by day and gathered money in abundance. And the king and Jehoiada gave it to such as did the work of the service of the house of the Lord and hired masons and carpenters to repair the house of the Lord and also such as wrought iron and brass to mend the house of the Lord. 
So the workmen wrought, and the work was perfected by them. And they set the house of God in his state and strengthened it. And when they had finished it, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada. For off they made vessels for the house of the Lord, even vessels to minister and to offer withal, and spoons and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. But Jehoiada waxed old and was full of days when he died. And hundred and thirty years old was he when he died. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel both toward God and toward his house. Amen. We'll end the reading there. And we pray that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing the reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now at this point, I'm going to ask Joanna to come and she's going to read a poem for the fallen. Thank you. So I think this poem is just entitled 1914. <clears throat> One hundred years ago, France Verdinand was slain, the opening salvo of a ward that brought a world of pain. One hundred years ago, the lovely Belle Epoque was wiped away forever, for a war had primed the clock. One hundred years ago, the son of Picardy shone on peaceful fields of green that would never be no more. One hundred years ago, the pals joined up to fight, marching through each homely town, doing what was right. We're just away till Christmas, was in their smiling eyes, as train load after train load, they waved their bright goodbyes. One hundred years ago, would Britain know the cost of saving little Belgium in the million sons she lost? One hundred years ago, a Malapoc was born, where blood and mud and mortar thud defaced the fields of corn. A hundred years from then, we mourn the waste of life, the broken hearts of loved ones, the needless, senseless strife. And all the countless what-ifs, the many might-have-beens, the limbless and the shell-shocked, haunted by their dreams. Dying for your country, such a noble aim, if only all those fallen ones could have the chance again to wind the clock hands backwards a century in time and disengage the war alarm. Oh, that would be sublime. The Archduke goes on living. The Serbs do not rebel. And all of Europe's boy and youth would still be fit and well. 
Perhaps the flu would not have spread across the population and art and industry could flourish throughout every nation. There would not be no second war, no Nazis in control, no U-Berts, no gas chambers, no war for Europe's soul. But here we are together. One hundred years have passed. Let's work to make the next one hundred better than the last. Thank you, Joanna, for that lovely poem. Now, my text this morning is taken from Second Chronicles, chapter 24, and verse 16. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done good in Israel, both toward God and toward his house. And my subject today is lessons... From the tomb of the unknown warrior. Now one of the great cities in the world to visit. If you were doing a search of great cities. Would be the city of London. I have been at least on two occasions in my lifetime so far. On one of those occasions I was able to visit the sites. And I remember that with fondness. What a blessing. As the late Colin Peckham out of the faith mission used to say. There's history oozing out of every brick. And that was especially true in the city of Westminster. And one of the most famous landmarks in Westminster is Westminster Abbey. Now there are many famous people buried in Westminster Abbey. And their graves stand as memorials to their life. And to their death. For example, Sir Isaac Newton is buried there. He, he was a brilliant scientist in his day. He was a true believer in God and in Jesus Christ and, and in a literal creation. It's interesting, of course, that not all scientists were atheistic or evolutionist, especially in the 18th and 19th century. Another person that's buried there is Charles Dickens. So was William Wilberforce, one who God raised up to bring about the abolishment of slavery. Elizabeth I is buried there, a godly queen. David Livingstone is buried there. Many other famous people. But today, I want you to think of a tomb there in Westminster Abbey. A tomb that you can go and visit if you're ever in London. And you know, young people, there's no name on it. It's known as the tomb of the unknown warrior. And it holds the remains of an unknown British soldier killed on a European battlefield during the First World War. He was buried in Westminster Abbey on the 11th of November 1920. At the same time, a similar interment of a French soldier at the Arc de Triomphe in France was taking place making both tombs the first to honour the unknown dead of World War I. Now the idea of a tomb of the unknown warrior was first conceived way back in 1916 by the Reverend David Realton. He was serving as an army chaplain on the Western Front 
and he had seen a grave marked by a rough wooden cross bearing the inscription, An Unknown British Soldier. He wrote to the Dean of Westminster in 1920, proposing that an unidentified British soldier from the battlefields in France be buried with Jewish ceremony in Westminster Abbey among the kings to represent the many thousands who had died fighting for king and country. The idea was supported by the then Dean and the then Prime Minister David Lord George. So on the morning of the 11th of November 1920, the second anniversary of armistice, a casket made from oak timbers of trees from Hampton Court was placed on a gun carriage of the Royal House Artillery. It was drawn by six horses through immense crowds standing in silence, followed, of course, the usual route, Hyde Park, Hyde Park Corner, the Mall, Whitehall, down to the Cenotaph and round to Westminster Abbey. Followed, of course, by the King, Royal Family, Ministers of State to uh, Westminster. Uh, the coffin was carried to the nave uh, of the cathedral, uh, flanked by a guard of honour of a hundred recipients of the Victoria Cross. Guests of honour were a group of a hundred women chosen each because they had lost their husbands and all their sons in the war. The coffin was interred in the western end of the knee, only a few feet from the entrance, in soil that was brought from each of the main battlefields in Europe, covered with a silk peel. The coffin was then capped with a black Belgian marble stone, and it features this inscription, now let me read it to you. Beneath this stone rests the body of a British warrior unknown by name or rank. Brought from France to lie among the most illustrious of the land. And buried here in Armistice Day, the 11th of November 1920, in the presence of His Majesty King George V, his ministers of state the chief of his armed forces and a vast concourse of the nation. Thus are commemorated the many multitudes who during the great war of 1914 to 1918 gave the most that man could give life itself for God, for king and country, for loved ones, home and empire for the sacred cause of justice and the freedom of the world. They buried him among the kings because he had done good toward God and toward his house. That's the main inscription, young people, on the tomb of the unknown warrior. And around the main inscription are four other scripture texts. The Lord knoweth them that are his, Second Timothy 2.19 at the top. Unknown and yet well-known, dying and behold we live, at the side, Second Corinthians 6 and 9. Greater love hath no man than this, John 15 verse 3, on the side. And at the bottom, as in Adam all die, 
so in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15.22 Five texts of scripture on that tomb of the unknown soldier. And of course that tomb contains valuable lessons for us today in the gospel. And for the next 15 minutes at least, that's what I want to share with you. And I want you to take home from the remembrance service today these lessons from the tomb of the unknown warrior. I want you to think, first of all, of the life of the unknown warrior. It says here in the text, And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done good in Israel, both toward God and toward his house. Think of the words, because he had done good. And of course, going back to the inscription that's there, think of the words, gave the most that man could give. Life itself. I want you to think now of the Lord Jesus. Because in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, we read, He went about doing good. And I want you to think of the earthly life of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, at the age of 30, he started his ministry. You could think about the many wonderful miracles he performed. Think about the many wonderful messages that he preached. Think about the wonderful manner with which he conducted himself. Do you know he really cared for people? He loved individuals. Nobody cares for people like the Lord Jesus. There is no love like the love of Jesus, the hymn writer says. You see, the life of Christ was not just an example of great importance for us to consider. The, the life of Christ was not just to focus on his love for men and his care for individuals. The Lord Jesus lived a life of absolute perfect sinlessness. The Bible teaches us he did no sin. He knew no sin. In him was no sin. In fact, he said, which of you convinceth me of sin? He said, the prince of this world cometh and of nothing in me. You see, individually, we are born sinners by nature and practice. And of course, individually, to stand before God and be accepted and be admitted to heaven, you and I need a righteousness that we don't have. That is a perfect righteousness. Remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes, and the Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees were, were some of the most holiest, some of the most religious people that you would have imagined on this earth in the life of Israel at, this, at that particular time. Pharisees were members of a strict religious sect, followed the law, uh, the scribes, they were the, 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 the people who, 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 who set and interpreted the law of God for the Pharisees to live by. And Jesus said, except your righteousness, exceed that of them. 
You see, these scribes and Pharisees imagined themselves better and holy and good in comparison to others. But they didn't see themselves as sinners. They didn't see themselves as unrighteous. And of course the Bible tells us there's none righteous, no not one. And the Lord Jesus came into this world and for 33 years he lived a life of absolute perfect sinlessness. And in that life he earned what we call a perfect righteousness to give to his people who would put their faith and trust in him. The Bible talks about Romans 5 and 10 being saved by his life. And the life of Christ as well as the death of Christ is absolutely necessary for our salvation. And the sinless life of Christ was necessary so that he produced and had for us a perfect righteousness that could be put to our account and we could become acceptable to God. Remember it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he that is God had made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us, a sin offering, a sin bearer, a sacrifice for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's only in Christ that we can be legally declared righteous. And that ties into the whole doctrine of justification by faith alone that we preached on last Sunday night. Jesus Christ, of course, lived a sinless life. He offered himself a once and for all sacrifice for sin. He, he rendered a, a, a perfect sacrificial death necessary to um, satisfy the holy justice and the holy wrath of God. One of those texts in that tomb is the Lord knows them that are his. And I want to ask the question, are you his today? Are you his because there was a time in your life when you recognized Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and your need of him and saw yourself as amongst those that don't have a righteousness with which to stand before God. And you discover that righteousness in Christ because he went about doing good. He lived a perfect sinless life. And I'm not suggesting that this unknown warrior lived a perfect sinless life. He didn't. He was a sinner like all the rest. But here's the scripture. He went about doing good. And the good that he did was, of course, what he did in the battlefields of France. On behalf of king and country, his family, freedom, justice and all the rest. And yet that peels into insignificance was compared to the good that the Lord Jesus Christ did. Notice secondly here, and very quickly, the love of the unknown warrior. Why did individuals go to war and sacrifice their lives even unto death? Surely the answer is this, for God, for king and country, for loved ones, home and empire, for the sacred cause of justice and the freedom of the world. These were the things that they loved. 
It's interesting that this unknown warrior died on foreign soil. I want you to think of the battlefields of France. A British soldier dying in France for the cause of freedom that he loved. A young man crossing the English Channel, leaving home, saying goodbye to his mother, maybe his sisters, whatever. He goes to the battlefields of France. And there, during the Great War, he falls in that conflict. And that young man today, as we have already said, is a symbol of the sacrifice by made so many who laid down their lives. Today, there's memorials to the fallen in the Great War and subsequent wars all over the country. I think there's something like 70,000 memorials to the Great War in the United Kingdom. It's interesting that it's reported recently in the BBC News 24 that at a certain bus stop in a certain town, young people in the south of England who were going off to school from a big housing estate the bus stop was not far from the stone memorial. In fact, they had to pass the stone memorial to uh, get to the bus stop. Uh, and they were asked by a BBC News 24 reporter uh, what this monument meant to them. Well, what was it about? And do you know, they answered, we don't know. They couldn't say why it was there, when it was placed there, and what it represented. Of course, there was a list of names on it. There was a stone emblem of a soldier. But not one of them could say this memorial represents the fallen on the battlefields of Europe in World War I. And surely we could say today that there's a major education program that's necessary to teach and remind us about the Great War and the evil and horror of war and, of course, subsequent war since. But this love of the unknown soldier, and even though he's forgotten about in the minds of man, is a picture of Christ. The Lord Jesus was at God's right hand. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. He, he left the Father's throne room. He left the Father's home and came into the world via the Virgin Mary. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. In a sense, we could say the Lord Jesus came into a foreign world. He came and stood on foreign soil. There was a time when the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem's manger. For a time he lived in Nazareth. And at the age of 30, he started his ministry. And his ministry lasted for three and a half years. And then he went all the way to, to Mount Calvary and died on the tree. As the Bible says in Hebrews 10 and 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And you know, there's so many today don't know about the person and work of Christ. Someone has rightly said, 
If God calls you to be a missionary, never stop to be a king. And we need missionaries today at home and abroad. You think of little Ulster. You know, our our land is a mission field. Our land is really is as dark as places in Africa and Latin America and in India. We even hear today of the, the African nation sending missionaries over to the United Kingdom. And there's places, there's housing estates in Little Ulster where people are dark and they're dead to God and they're blind. And there's things happening in our nation, of course, that, that uh, is a worrying trend. And, and there seems to be so few faithfully standing up and speaking out. You, you think of the thousands of unchurched people today in Northern Ireland. You think of the, the, the many young people that don't even know what the war memorial stands for or, or why we wear a poppy wreath. Does not just remind us of John chapter 1 verse 11. He came unto his own and his own received him not. And how many today refuse Jesus Christ? How, how many today reject any thought or knowledge of heaven? And yet the truth is that God the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world on a mission of mercy. Surely the greatest love story of all is John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Here's the greatest sending of all time. Here's the greatest sacrifice of all time. Here's the greatest salvation of all time. He can say, I've loved you with an everlasting love. He can come and say, I've loved you freely. He's the son of God of whom Paul said, loved me and gave himself for me. In that tomb it's written, greater love of no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. The love of the unknown warrior. It's interesting that in the tomb of Westminster Abbey, you can walk round all the other tombs You can even walk over them. But you see this tomb of black Belgian marble with reefs around it, just inside the entrance there of the western nave. You can go to that tomb. You can take a picture. You can stand and look at it. You can read the inscription. You can read the text. But you're not allowed to walk in the tomb. Children are not allowed to run over it. You can walk over the other tombs, but not this tomb. And you know, isn't that the attitude to multitudes in reference to Jesus Christ? Many are in ignorance of who he is. Many are indifferent as to why he came. Many are full of ingratitude as to what he did for them. The blessing of salvation. And so many want to walk over Christ. And walk over his sacrificial life and death and do destitute to it. Isn't it interesting that way back in the land of Israel. There was blood put in the side posts of the door. There was blood put in the lintel, the head. But no blood was allowed in the threshold. They weren't to walk over the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And there's a wonderful picture again of Christ. Out of love. This is what he did. 
He came from heaven's glory. And he died in foreign soil in a sense. And he died a sacrificial atoning death. It's interesting that there's a picture of a steam engine that was reproduced in the Daily Mail in November um, 2007. That picture would be 97 years old today. And it was one young fella's testimony that when he was a boy, it was his birthday, his dad was in the war fighting in France, and his mummy had sent a letter to the dad, what do you want, son, for your birthday? And he said, all I want is a picture of a steam engine. And that's what he got. Just a, a scrawled bit of paper with a rough outline and charcoal of a steam engine, and that boy treasured it. And he discovered later that his father had actually been in hospital by the time he got the letter. And his legs had been blown off. And three of his fingers in each hand and his thumbs had been blown off. And in pain and agony, he drew that picture for his son. And he said, by way of testimony, he's a man from Eastbourne. I'm trying to remember his name. Yes, uh, uh, Alf Musgrave. And he said, all that I have from my dad is a testament of love, a picture of a steam engine. And when you think of that earthly image and then lift it up into the heavenly realm and think of what Jesus Christ did for us, is that not a testament of love? Was he not saying, this is how much I love you? Notice lastly, the loyalty of the unknown warrior. You see, that, that tomb, as I thought about it in London, and I remember seeing it. Sadly, I didn't take a picture. I don't think I had a camera. But, but that tomb is a testimony <coughs> And a memorial to an unidentified soldier who died in the battlefield of France. I want you to think of the tomb of Jesus Christ. Because you can go today to Jerusalem. You can go into the garden where there's a tomb. And you can see the stone rolled away. And you can see the tomb is empty. The tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. There's nothing in it. Jesus Christ is alive. And how do I know that Jesus Christ is alive? Well, there's many proofs that we could cite today. This tomb of the unknown soldier is, is testament to the dead. But the tomb of Christ is testimony not only to the fact that he died, but the testimony that he's alive. Of course, we could talk about the text of Scripture. And, and that's a, a wonderful thing in itself. He is not here. I am risen, as he said. But also think of this as we finish. The courage of the disciples. Before the resurrection, they were a bunch of weak, feeble, cowardly men. As afraid as mice. They were, they were behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And then they got this message of the resurrection. He's alive. And it all changed. And they were filled with courage. They were filled with power. 
Remember in the first Easter Sunday, Jesus came and stood in the midst when the doors were locked and said, Peace be unto you. Maybe you're here this morning, you're discouraged, you're downcast, you're thinking about personal situations and circumstances, you're weak and fearful, you're even thinking about the circumstances and situation in the church, and you're thinking about the community of no interest in coming to hear God's word. But let's remember back, Jesus just had 12 disciples. And then there was 120, not big numbers. And you know, one with God's a majority. And these 120 became full of the power of the Holy Ghost. And full of wisdom and full of faith. And they went out from Jerusalem and they went forth to tell. And they were willing to become martyrs and lay down their lives with full of loyalty to Jesus Christ. We haven't seen him in the flesh. But what about us? Doesn't the hymn writer say, sound the gospel of grace abroad? There's life in the risen Lord. And there's life in the risen Lord today. And we don't have to be discouraged. We don't have to be defeated. We don't have to be feeble and cowardly. The life of Christ with which he died. Remember we died in him. We arose in him. And we can have resurrection victory in him. Do you need encouragement today? Coming into church is like soldiers coming into the barracks. And here you meet with others. You have fellowship. Here there's a family. Here there's encouragement. But also here there's a fresh set of instructions. Here we get our marching orders from the king to go out and do something for God. And to remain loyal and faithful and true unto him. I leave these thoughts with you today. The tomb of the unknown soldier. What does it teach us? It teaches about his life. He went about doing good. It teaches about his love. Because he loved not his life unto death. It's a wonderful picture of Christ. It teaches about his loyalty. His death marks his loyalty to his king and country, his family, the cause of freedom and all the rest. What about our loyalty to Christ? May the Lord bless these few remarks to us.